This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. People try to put us to Talking about my generation Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things they do look awful
when we talked to Neville Peat, author and city councillor and Otago regional councillor in his time, a few weeks earlier, Neville had spoken at two public rallies celebrating the launch of the Wise Response campaign. Here's what he said in the second rally in the Museum Reserve. In the reporting, opting instead for periodic sector reports. You can guarantee one thing from this, there'll be few, they'll be few and far between. And it sounds to me like a recipe for these shifting baselines I mentioned this afternoon. For those of you who weren't there, you get shifting or sliding baselines when each generation redefines what is natural without realising the baseline is moving downwards. As a consequence, each generation unwittingly accepts less in the way of natural resources and ecosystem services. This has spawned another term, generation generational amnesia. It represents a massive risk, the blind acceptance of less and less. And the speakers preceding me have outlined some of what you may get in the future. The way to stop the baseline shifting is, I think, to apply more science and technology to measuring environmental degradation. We have the capacity to do this now. And I think that feedback from this increased scientific and technological work would water the eyes of Parliament, and they can, re- and that would result in new limits to extraction, hopefully, and controls on adverse effects. Nature will patch up greedy extraction and ignorant contamination to some extent, but there are limits. We've come back to that notion of the shrinking baseline several times over the years starting with Neville Peat himself a few weeks after the Wise Response launch. I reminded him of what he had said. Quality or the whatever. You said a nice line which I'll misquote at the opening of the launch of the Wise Response appeal. You said something like each generation unwittingly accepts a lowering of the baseline. There was nature in that sentence somewhere. Shrinking baseline, yeah. That's right. Um, that's well remembered, Sam, <laughs> because I can only remember it myself, but what you were going to say. But, yeah, that's true. Um, that shrinking baseline is such an important concept because um, it is so easy for us and for the generations to come along and say that's the new normal. That Well, they don't say it's new normal. They just say that's the normal. That's how much quality uh, we can expect out of this river, uh, wetland, whatever, um, and not realise that it has, you know, that it's shrunk in the appearance genera- time um, and so on. And so intergenerationally you just get a steady decline in, in quality Um which can only be countered by action of some sort. Yeah, and this is this is uh, this is starting to require a behaviour change in people. And as we know uh, here and probably uh, out there in Radio Land, um, changing people's behaviour, whether it's you know um, giving up on sort of driving to work or and taking the public transport or. Um, or, or doing something to to enhance the environment that they live in, um, plant more food in their backyard, whatever. Um, that's that's hard, and um, the easiest way is just to do nothing.
and just just um, the laissez-faire attitude just let it let it ride out and why should it be my responsibility um, and um, in your current role as in the as a city councillor yeah. skipping forward to it yep one of the key things in sustainability as you said is that intergenerational equity people in the future don't have a place around today's council table but the decisions mm. we you are making clearly affect them. Mm. Is there a formal way of considering that? Well, not only um, if you keep rem- waking up in the morning and saying, "What's the definition of sustainability?" and it does include, you know, um, without compromising the needs of future generations. And if you wake up with that, I mean, you can <laughs> you get a uh, a sense of that you're here not as as a user but as a caretaker um, and um, it's up to you to you know do your best we are only just here temporarily on a planet that is you know supremely beautiful and I've seen I've seen the length of New Zealand from Tokelau where I've been uh, a couple of times and what I call their farthest north a set of coral atolls that are slowly you know, going to be overwhelmed by sea level rise all the way to to Antarctica, where you know, I, where I could see a very slow increase uh, in the annual average um, air temperatures around the base, which have been taken since nineteen fifty six seven summer, and even after twenty years, uh, there was a an increase going on. But it's more so, convenient to ignore that. Well, it is. It, yeah, it can be that, but. Um, you know, depends on your motivation, doesn't it? I mean, somewhat. You, you're often you get a get a moment of um, of inspiration or um, a, a, a moment where suddenly that all seems right. It's a, almost a mystical, a mystical effect, actually. And 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 for me. I go back to an old journalist said to me, um, you know, Neville, it's more effective if you convey an idea than if you say it. If you say it to someone, you will do this and you follow my prescription, um, you're not going to have as much effect as if you convey it. And that's what the Lark Trilogy is all about, conveying an idea of appreciation of nature and a tuning in and that kind of thing.
So Neville Peat in 2013 was talking about a shrinking baseline, intergenerational decline, behaviour change associated with that, and generational amnesia. We've come back to it with other people. Let's see who else has talked about that. Here's Albert Nordstrom in Stockholm in 2015. Coral reefs, are they, yeah. re- are they re- repairable? It depends on what, what baseline you have. I think with a lot of ecosystems as well, I think you're probably not going to be able to go back to, yeah, just to use a word which I think is a, is a bit strange to use, but pristine levels. I mean, you're not going to go back to a situation where you get all the dugongs and big mega herbivores, big turtles back. Um, the same thing goes for rainforests. You're not going to go to a situation where you get like big, huge mammals that went extinct two, three hundred years ago. So uh, within restoration ecology, within conservation ecology, this notion of novel ecosystems is becoming more and more popular. And um, also in, in the guise of, you know, regime shifts, it's a matter of, you know, we could, we could get things back um, and get, you know, coral reefs back to um, a state where they continue producing a decent amount of fish biomass. They, they're reasonably aesthetic, so we can still attract tourists to come diving on them. They still perform a reasonable, good job of protecting coastal communities from storms and, and tsunamis. Um, we're not going to go back to how they looked 500 years ago. And I think setting conservation targets that have that as the other goal are just nonsensical. Um, because, you know, we've, we've locked these systems into trajectories. Um, we, it, you're never going to go back to that. But I, I, I definitely think that. And, you know, ecosystems are surprisingly, um, resilient in the sense of the situations where you, or context, taking coral reefs, for example, where they should be totally smothered, where you've, you know, you've had overfishing going on for 20, 30 years, where you've had sediments being pumped into into the waters, nutrients being pumped in, and you still find reasonably um, healthy coral communities there. So most ecosystems have this capacity to adapt and, and change, but, you know, that doesn't mean we should just leave them and, and, and you know, to their own fate. I, I still think you need, you know, I think we still know that they require active management, adaptive management, um, in order for us to be able to maintain them and kind of shuffle them along um, a pathway where they stay reasonably healthy and stay reasonable, um, capable to keep on producing ecosystem services that we as humans require. You've used the sustainability word in relation <laughs> to sustainability science several times, so what does it mean to you? Um, well, I, 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 since I am at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, um, I have a viewpoint of, of sustainability as being systems which are resilient. So systems that aren't just, you know, optimised to produce single things or produce single species or geared towards single targets, but social ecological systems that are managed in a way that promotes diversity, um, but also promotes the capacity to continuously live with change. I think the 
the classic definition of, of sustainability kind of ignores this aspect of constant change, which I think is a characteristic of the Anthropocene. Um, and it's been interpreted in a sense of just keeping the status quo. Let's just be sustainable. Let's just continue um, in the pathway, even though perhaps the original definitions weren't like that. But I think a more resilient sustainability perspective acknowledges that things are going to change all the time, and especially in the Anthropocene, and they're going to change perhaps at rates which we've never seen before. So the, the, the big challenge is how do you then design societies in a sense? That's a bit of an ugly word, but how do you, a better way of framing that, how do you provide the tools to societies, to social ecological systems to be able to cope with this change? And these tools can be anything from you know your governance structures, your management um, um, methods, your epistemology, your scientific um, toolbox, the structure of your universities, and so on. But we don't necessarily <laughs> want to have systems that are changing, not for change's sake, but we quite like to have native ecosystems and not necessarily have lots of weeds in those the, the quick colonizers and things yeah, so sure. those systems yeah, yeah. are changing and responding to change yeah. Yeah. but we did actually quite like the not the pristine as such yeah. but the, there is value in trying to maintain oh, those yeah, systems yeah. of course I think that's that's also a difficult thing when you when you talk about you know it's not as if Brazilian scholars or people that you know looking at novel ecosystems and promoting perhaps that novel ecosystems in the sense of ecosystems which are just popping up as new configurations as a result of human actions are something we should only be promoting um, of course there's, there's a huge unseen value in having pristine ecosystems in the sense of the sense of wonder the aesthetic value of these pristine um, ecosystems, hiking in an untouched, or sort of untouched, you know, um, milieu where we just being blown away by the, the sight of, you know, big um, boreal forests and, and, the, and the, the animals that inhabit them is, is something that's difficult to put a value in. But I think these, those, even those things fall into the, the framework of ecosystem services, at least in the way we're doing it here at the Stockholm Resilience Center and all of other partners around the world who are not just focused on the monetary value, because I think that's also one way that the ecosystem service um, discourse has been hijacked by researchers and by governments and by businesses in the sense of we just have to account for the monetary value. And I think, okay, that pathway is successful in the sense that it speaks the language of a lot of decision makers and a lot of businessmen, but it but it, it forgets those kind of intangible um, or invisible aspects of of the value of ecosystems, um, which is one of them is what you're alluding to this kind of the, the sense of awe and the, the value of just having you know semi pristine ecosystems out there. there. Albert Nordstrom there talking about novel ecosystems, regime shifts, socio-ecological systems. Actually, they call them social ecological systems, but the rest of the world has picked up on socio-ecological systems. Um, the Anthropocene and providing tools so that those socio-ecological systems can cope with change. 
Dominique Hess has a similar approach. She refers to regeneration rather than resilience, though. Really interesting question because within the field of that I've now shifted to, so I, I came from an idea of sustainability and we must protect the world. Um, humans are bad. We need to pull up our socks, get, swallow the responsibility um, pill and start being better behaved people within this world. And I realised that I was getting absolutely no traction. Students were falling asleep. They weren't turning up to lectures. Uh, there was no creativity or ability to innovate. Uh, they were really just trying to um, toe the line. And I'll get back to your point about nature. Um, and then I shifted that conversation to one where through some, some real slap in the face uh, around where I realised how, how little effect the bad news stories have on the ability for people to be part of a positive future. And so I um, switched the conversation to the potential we have as humans as part of the world. And that potential is to keep contributing to the capacity of the place to thrive. And so rather than continuing to degrade across each generation and then expecting that that's the baseline um, so New Zealand is now beautiful because it's green and got lots of grass on it. Um, but if we look back 300 years before white man came here, there was no grass and there were these complex multi-layered forests and so forth. But we expect that this is now the beautiful New Zealand. Uh, I know that um, places like Raglan and, and other places are starting to think about how do we bring back that past capacity? But interestingly, on, on another project I'm working on, it's not just about that conservation mindset of bringing back the past, but it's also an acceptance that we as humans have had an impact. And what does the new future look like? What does thriving in the future look like, uh, given the impact that we've had? I don't think there is any place on Earth that humans haven't touched. And given that, what does the new normal look like, where it is about thriving ecosystems and human systems? And so for the project that uh, I'm working on uh, in Victoria, we have a degraded ecosystem where salt water has um, basically got rid of all of the natural um, bush and created a monoculture of salt bush or just plain salt on earth. And we're adapting that to be both salt marsh and then through... Um, bringing, um, supporting that salt marsh, which is evolving to uh, strengthen and, and evolve its capacity, creating a buffer so that we can bring back the fresh water systems that were, have been affected by that salt. And so we're strengthening both the old ecosystem that was there, but also acknowledging that we're in a transition to a, a salt water system and working with that to strengthen its capacity and potential. And so for, for this site, we've gone from um, 80 plus freshwater bird species coming to visit to two uh, and now with the works that we're hoping to do which is in conjunction with development for humans we're hoping to bring not just back those 80 species of freshwater bird but also create capacity for the future saltwater birds to come to this place. So your book in 2014 Designing for Hope Pathways to Regenerative Sustainability. Okay give us Designing for Hope 101. So Designing for Hope, I wasn't going to call it that. I was at Bill Reed's home. Uh, he's one of the key thinkers in the regenerative development movement, interviewing him, and he said to me, why are you calling it, and I can't even remember what the name was that we were calling it at that time, 
And I was like, well, because it is about transition, it's about in the future, it's about um, how we get people on board. He said, no, why are you calling it that? And I was like, well, you know, my students are really interested in positive stories of the future. He says, no, why? I mean, this went on, and by the fifth why, I was just about in tears of frustration, and I said, well, it's because of this student. He committed suicide. And I thought, stuff this. The world's got so much hope about it. There's so much about it that is great, and people are doing such amazing stuff. And, and the reason that the student did this was because of peak oil and, and, and not seeing any hope in the future. And so that became the name of the book. It became Designing for Hope uh, with the intention of creating a point where people can turn to and say, well, how are people around the world doing this differently in such a way as to create both ecological and social capacity?
That was Dirty Projectors, not quite designing for hope, but self-design. You're listening to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. We're exploring the notion of the shrinking baseline. Here is Brian Scott. We're talking in 2018. Yeah. He, well, when he was on the show, he talked about how every generation unwittingly accepts a degradation of nature because it's they don't know that it was better before them. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I do know. You know, I do know, and I, and I read, and I, I, and I feel, and I see, you know, and experience. You know, you go to a place like Fiordland, you know, these, these wonderful areas that we've set aside to reflect the past, and then, you, and then you see, you know, the changes, the changes in the streams, the changes in the agriculture, the changes in the attitude going from you know a family farmer community situation to a business to more of a business orientation and these are gross generalizations but nevertheless um, they have had their you know ecological impact and that's a fact that, that, that you, you talked about how the relationship between agriculture and the environment when you were when you were young yeah it was it was low intensity yeah and so we the, accepted the, we got away with what got we were doing yeah is it the same practices but but ramped up is that where we've where we've lost some of the control that, that we've tried to maintain what was we what was working before but when we've increased the intensity of it stopped working is it this I'm, yeah no, no i i think the answer to that is yes but but it is a gross generalization as well like you 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 will find people doing sustainable practices you know doing all you know wonderful things you know keeping things in sort of balance and their financial situation might have a little bit to do with that they may have inherited the farm taking it on just carrying the practice or they may have bought the farm and have inherited a debt and therefore they're they're a lot more economically you know focused um i mean like it's interesting in otago for example you, you you probably find that 20% of the farms have 80% of the negative impact and 80% of the farms are actually doing okay, Jack. And what the heck are you on about, Brian Scott? You know, but those 20% have a huge impact. You know, so for example, um, without jumping into it too quickly, you know, like uh, a typical dairy farm, for example, has the same ecological impact as as a community of 10,000 people. There are so many ways, new ways, in which we can put off the bad news. So, you know, if your loved one dies on you, there is a hard reality there. The evidence is so clear and strong that eventually you're going to know it's happened, no matter how hard your brain is trying to wriggle out of it. Climate change isn't like that. There's a lot more wriggle room. It's abstract. It's going to be going on a few and years' time. it's not time. starting next Tuesday. It's not starting next Tuesday. You've got scientists and politicians and business leaders and a billion pounds a year worth of, of, um, of lobby funding going on to create a whole storyline to help persuade you that you can put this off 
you know, for another day. And even if you even even if you accept the facts, you've still got a whole rack of excuses for why there's nothing you can do, or it's not your problem, or it's somebody else who should be doing it. It's really down to the politicians, or the consumers, or the businesses, or the or the pe- or people in other countries. Maybe it's the Chinese or the Americans, or every village's got a re- you know a reason why it's not them that has to do anything about it. So we've got all these layers and layers of defences between the evidence. <laughs> And the hard reality that all of us have an important and urgent role in confronting the issue right now, and we can all do something about it. So we talked about what is a big business opportunity rather than a threat, hopefully, yeah. for the companies. But what about the smaller scales of individuals? Well, I'll come on to that mm-hmm. in a sec. Just yeah, just back to the business opportunity. I don't, I don't want to be. Um, I, you know, I actually think there is a lot of business opportunity out there. I also don't think it's the root reason why businesses should change what they do. I think we should be absolutely clear and unembarrassed about this. The reason why we as people and as individuals and as businesses and as countries should respond to climate change and sustainability is because it's the right thing to do. Full stop. We should be unembarrassed about that. You know, whether or not it's the most profitable thing to do, we should do it because it's the right thing, because we care about our kids, and they'll look us in the eye and ask us what we did about it. Or even if they're, not, even if they're too embarrassed to do that, they'll wonder. They'll want us to have done the right thing. Do you think in 50 years' time people are going to look back and think, what were they thinking? Yeah, I do. And I think they'll have every right to. They will look at you know, the children of people whose parents and grandparents were in had you know were in nasty regimes you know they will look back and they will they will say why what were you doing how they'll wonder at how we got swept along they'll wonder at our inaction and they'll be disappointed by it and we won't like that we won't like that feeling if we if we you know when when we know that the question is somewhere whether it's being tangibly asked or whether it's just quietly lurking in the background we'll know that the question is there when you saw climate change fully in the face what did you do about it you know did you really just carry on because because you couldn't think of anything to do or because you weren't brave enough or because everyone else around you was just carrying on were you really that weak i think we'd all be embarrassed to think of ourselves as being like that That's Mike Berners-Lee, author of How Bad Are Bananas?
Before the break, Mike Berners-Lee was adamant that people in 50 years would look back at us and indeed say with a critical view, what were they thinking? But if we loop back to the start, I wonder how that would counters the shrinking baseline, the generational amnesia we started with, with Neville Pete. And yet that is the story. And it's back. People are still doing it. And it's a complete dead end. And so I started wondering, why do, under what scenario is it a good idea to convince ourselves of things that aren't true, but that we get excited about? And nowadays we pass them, we pass these exciting things around on Facebook and, and everybody goes, yay. And, and it, it's not true. <laughs> Tooth fairy. <laughs> Maybe we've always so, had to have these mythologies that, that make us happy about something. <laughs> but then the next project I worked on was, was hydrogen and fuel cells. And it happened again. And I, I, you know, I'm a really smart person and I couldn't see it coming. I couldn't see going into it that the story was, was made up. And yet there you are working on it and just going, something's not working in my brain because I'm looking at the materials it takes and, and what it would take to manufacture it and the energy balance on it and the way that the, that the economics of it would work. And none of this works <laughs> and it can't work fundamentally. So why are you paying me to work on this? And why, why am I spending time out of my career that I want to spend on energy systems and on sustainability, why am I spending it over here working on something that will never be 
is no solution whatsoever. And yet everybody's excited about it. So I decided there's something called the green energy mythologies. <laughs> and they're maybe as important as mythologies have always been for people. That we have a belief in our own progress and in our own development. And we need stories and mythologies that support that belief. We really need them. And the facts tell us we are in trouble. <laughs> that that development and that progress that we've been so successful at is actually a trap. And, and it's, it's a bit suicidal. Okay, it's a lot suicidal. And yet, we, we don't know how to deal with that except to believe more in the story. <laughs> because the alternative story is not so pleasant. Oh, why not? Say, so, now we've got to transition engineering. Because, <laughs> because it's about us using less. So what? Well, we're having a party. Ah. Uh. <laughs> we're having a party and there's a miracle just around the corner. You know, we, we do think that way, don't, don't we? Because the party we've been having is that we have all come to a trough that is bottomless. Right? Since the 1950s, I mean, if you have a great granny or something who had to live through the Depression, they know where the bottom is. <laughs> they know where the ground is. But the rest of us, since the 1950s or so, um, we've been at a all-you-can-eat banquet with a return free refills card. <laughs> you know, And we've come to think that that's how things are. And we've gotten quite obese. That's not good for us, and, and it is actually going to kill us. And yet, we're afraid of having to change. But that's a useful metaphor, because at an all-we-can-eat banquet, what we do is we load that plate up. Oh, as yeah. As if we're going to run out. <laughs> or, or making sure we're getting as much as we possibly can. Yes, because it's there, and it's cheap, and it's good. Nobody's saying it's not good. Food's good. You want it. But it's just not okay. a system that's sustainable. That's about what we're doing. But you're yep. also saying there's a myth about the solution. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of myths about What's the solutions. Well, these green technology myths, right? If we were going to draw the the four-quadrant diagram, you, you make a, um, two lines that intersect each other, and you say, I'm going to think about the future. And in the future, there's four possible scenarios. Right. One of those corners, one of those quadrants, you're going to say is the green technology corner where we have technology solutions and, and we, um, we use alternative technologies. We use alternative fuels. Um, we use green resources. So solar and wind and these things. And, um, the other four quadrants, as you can imagine, are not so pleasantly green. <laughs> the brown or brown green or right so so um one of those quadrants has continued exponential growth in the use of fossil fuels and um this would be the opposite quadrant to the to the green one um and yet that one we all kind of know is doomed so so it's usually brown or something because it's 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 doomed to crash and so this, this idea that, um, clearly what we'll do is we will shift our growth over into the green category. It's about making choices. It's about choices between bad energy and good energy. 
and yet that is not at all what is possible or or what's going on which is why you don't see it happening i mean on one level people go oh but their solar panels are now cheap right wind turbines are 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 going up everywhere and that's all true but get online go to the website of the country you're in and look at the percentage of transportation energy manufacturing energy <laughs> and electric energy that is produced in your country by renewable energy and you'll see that it doesn't matter if solar capacity grows by 200% it still um doesn't reduce the amount of fossil fuel that you're using so that's a uh, again a story we've told ourselves that that will will shift over into that other quadrant even worse, we good. could go and look that up but we don't mm. and it's hidden from us when we if not deliberately hidden we've made our lives so comfortable that we don't need to know we turn the light on and we have no idea what percentage of the that power is coming from fossil fuels or from, mm. or from wherever else well you've got um these stories about, say, hydrogen or something. I don't know. Hydrogen has kind of maybe played out a little bit, but boy, was it big when I moved here in 2000. It was huge. I mean, that that's actually partly why I was hired, because I had been doing this work on hydrogen and fuel cells in the United States, but but I didn't want to anymore that, you know, if you're going to spend... Did you tell them that in the interview? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually talk about hydrogen. I, I, you know, it wasn't my interest anymore, but um, then I got here and got invited to a meeting of... A, of a, a, Wellington, that the government got together people to um, to make a strategy, and uh, they wanted to know from me really um, how well, how do we reduce the barriers to the hydrogen economy, because we want New Zealand to be one of the first countries in the world to make the shift to the hydrogen economy, and I have to say I sort of just sat there and looked at them for a minute, like what are you talking about? You know there is no such thing, right? <laughs> Oh, but in America, they're, you know, they have it already. They have it, they, they already are doing it. And I had to sit there and look at them and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> Be careful of what the, the stories are coming out of America because it's not like that. It's, that's not what's happening. Um, and yet that's what New Zealand spent its energy research funding on for quite a few years was, was hydrogen. And there is no such thing. So, so that's when I started thinking these energy mythologies are not only just dumb and erroneous, they're really costly. We spend a lot of money on them, which if the, you are the United States, maybe you have the money to spend, but New Zealand doesn't. And then what else do we do? This was in 2000. We waste time. So I, I, I'm not quite sure how to dispel these mythologies, but um, uh, <laughs> they're definitely not the way we get sustainability. So so basically anything that anybody sends you with a big yay, like solar roads. Have you, have you seen that one? <laughs> Why? Anything somebody sends you like that. Really, everybody, your green energy mythology radar should just ping and you should just go, oh my gosh, that is probably one of those. Uh, that's Susan Crumdike, not exactly talking about the generational amnesia we started with, but I think it's useful to think about it in terms of those 
mythologies um, and the stories that we tell ourselves and the drivers for that. So we started with Neville Peat talking about uh, the shrinking baseline, Dominique Hess talking about regeneration, thriving, uh, designing for hope, Albert Nordstrom talked about novel ecosystems and regime shifts, uh, socio-ecological systems, Brian Scott uh, talked about what we can do to actually uh, manage the changes that are happening uh, beneath us. Uh, Mike Berners-Lee took a systems approach to it and then Susan Crumdike with an interesting metaphor about the bottomless trough. She was at Canterbury University but I've just seen that she's moved to Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. I think I shall chase her for a longer conversation about that move and where transition engineering has gotten to. You can hear all of the people that we have heard from today in full on sustainablelens.org. You can do a search there for their whole conversations as well as 400 and something other folks. This is Troy Kingy Kamanu. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin. That was Sustainable Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show.
At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.